Just past 7 o'clock, and here we go. It's another really big one. It's Iron Sports, 95.90 True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and so much to talk about. Everyone in the world is talking about the final of the Kentucky Derby, and probably not for the reasons that you'd be thinking. We've got plenty to talk about that tonight. Also some great guests. Ira, first and foremost, where are you? I'm in L.A. I was at Santa Anita on Saturday watching the Kentucky Derby at Santa Anita, which is great because I'm at this one of the, it's the first time I was ever there at Santa Anita, one of the uh, most famous racetracks in the world, and watching the Kentucky Derby, watching what happened, be able to be at the track, talk to horse owners and everyone there, got a great impression about what was going on in terms of this. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I love horse racing. I think it's great. Now people say, oh, this is going to hurt horse racing. The, there's, this is the most I've ever heard about. Even the Justify and American Fair winning Triple Crown, I don't think has got much, much discussion. I mean, wall-to-wall, front page of the newspapers, front page, everyone talking about it on the radio, everyone talking about it on TV. This has been the story, is, is the fact that maximum security was disqualified for the first disqualification for in-house uh, on-race violation in 145 years of the Kentucky Derby. It is uh, just crazy, and yeah, it's what everyone's talking about today. So, of course, we're going to discuss it. And with nobody better, first up, it's Gary Stevens, legendary jockey. Tell us about Gary. He's joining us at 710. Well, just one of the greatest jockeys of all time, 5,000 wins, three Kentucky Derby wins, three Preakness wins, three Belmont wins, 11 Breeders' Cup, 97 Hall of Fame member, one of the greatest jockeys of all time. He's going to uh, give his analysis of what happened. He was there uh, working for NBC. And then we're going to have uh, Brittany Yurton from uh, TVG, who was at NBC, who was actually interviewing everybody in the winner's circle while this went on for NBC also. So we have two really good guests that's going to give us insight about what went on and what their feelings are. And it's great because you listen. I've been listening to 100 people, and I would say most people think the decision was right, but it's not everybody. And there's a lot of knowledge of people who said the decision was, was incorrect. But you can see the arguments on both sides. So it's actually interesting that there's a debate, and it's tough people are talking about it. Maybe not for the right reasons people are talking about horse racing, but it's definitely in the news, and people are learning a lot about it. And that you know, creates more excitement for the sport, then so be it. It's great. Yeah, the owners of Maxim Security are among the people who don't agree with it. Um, they're, of course, appealing. Not that I think that that's going to do all that much. Um, but you won't, we'll have Gary Stevens on in just a minute. Uh, we're dialing him up now. But Ira, um, tell us a little bit more about Santa Anita. Um. I'll tell you what, I've never been there. I've been to maybe 20-some racetracks. For some reason, it's just missed it. it. Beautiful track. I mean, it's like Art Deco, California style. It looks like Saratoga. The mountains, the, uh, there's these uh, St. Gabriel Mountains in the, in the distance. There's, it the tra- sits below where the track is, above the track. And it's, just, and it's a one-mile track. It's so pretty. It's so calm, uh, quiet. That's why I feel like Saratoga. There's like a lot of people there, but there's no action. And you just feel like you're at a horse track. And it's nice. It's not dumpy. It's, 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 not, it's not over the top, Vegas style, glitzy like Gulfstream. But it's, it has this very quaint California, laid back horse racing thing. I loved it. I mean, movies have been filmed there. Um, it opened in 1934, and in 1935, it had the largest uh, uh, handicap purse of all time for the San Diego Derby. Uh, Seabiscuit ran his last race there, and, uh, and now with Hollywood Park closed, all the races are in San Diego in L.A., but that's one of the reasons that San Diego, what maybe happened in Kentucky, was that there's been 23 deaths this past year from horses. There's been a lot of horse injuries about the track, and it's a question they just shut it down for a month and redo the track there. There's been some issues, and that's one reason why they thought maybe the stores will ask Gary and ask Brittany about this, whether the stewards in Kentucky felt for safety purposes that it was better to set, a, uh, set the standard, set an example in terms of uh, how, what was going to go on. But when I was at Santa Anita, an hour before, a, a horse who was, um, the name's not that important right now, but the horse that won was moved back to second for the exact same for riding into the second place horse. And they switched it up from first and second. Now, the, it wasn't disqualified to the back, but it happened right there. But it was, it was great to be at Santa Anita. I loved it. Um, ate in the stands, the food. And, and what they're doing at these horse tracks, which are so cool, is that it's like we go to the movies now. It used to be you just have those boring seats. Now every seat is almost like a luxury seat. And it makes it a lot of fun to go, relaxing. And uh, I'm really just, I'm so glad I went there. It was great track to be there. And of course, I had 75 degree and sunny weather with the people in in Kentucky and in Louisville were in a driving rainstorm, so that's the difference. 
We are just about a minute or two away from uh, getting Gary Stevens on here. He's having some uh, phone issues, so he's given us uh, another number to call. We'll have Gary Stevens uh, on in just a minute. But w- so, what do you think of the actual race, Ira? I mean, it-, it was a really interesting derby, and uh, you know, the track conditions really kind of set it apart for me because I was hoping to get a little bit better track and not the slop. Well, I think that's what that's one thing that helps in terms of maximum security. A lot of people feel that they didn't believe that maximum security would have been able to win it without that without the conditions being as uh, sloppy as it was. And an hour before, it was pretty good. My friends were telling me it's very good conditions. It, was, it wasn't raining. And then it just rained really hard, really fast. And that caused a lot of problems. And then as everybody saw on TV, I mean, you had a, it was the question was at the turn, and maximum security veered into War of the Will. And then War of the Will veered into uh, Long Range Toddy, who Mike Ivoroni was on last week, saying that that's his surprise favorite. And then Country House was the outside. And they came into the finish line with uh, maximum security winning, but then it was long range toddy and uh, long range toddy's jockey, John Court, and also Country House's jockey, Flavian Pratt, who lodged objections. And then after 22 minutes, the stores reversed. You know, um, Ira, I was really rooting for Long Range Toddy. Of course, I threw some money on him after uh, Mike Verone said said he was, uh, you know, one of his long shot picks, and I thought he really had a chance there. I do think we have Gary Stevens on the line. He is legendary jockey Gary Stevens. You can follow him on Twitter at gstevens underscore jockey. 1997, he was inducted into the Horse Racing Hall of Fame. This guy's a legend. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on Iron Sports. Yeah, sorry about that. You guys have been calling in. I had my phone charging. I was on vibrate and doing uh, a lot of interviews today, as you uh, probably expect. Oh, I'm sure that battery's been uh, <laughs> been getting crushed all day, so I'm sure you're uh, tethered to the wall. But we appreciate you taking some time out uh, to join us here. Ira, what do you have for Gary? Gary, I guess the, the question of the day is, in terms of your analysis, I mean, Remember, I'm talking. We're talking to someone now who's won three Kentucky Derbies, three Preakness, three Belmonts. I mean, if anybody that understands in terms of you won five thousand races, give me your analysis of, of exactly. Are do you agree with what the Stewart's decision was, and uh, and did you feel like it was it was the right move, and and, how, and also how they handled it? Well, listen, there's there's two two takes on this, and yes, the the stewards uh, made one hundred percent right uh, decision in uh, dealing with this thing. I mean, their hands were tied. I don't think they were comfortable with it. Obviously, the best horse won the race. I didn't see anybody that was coming. I mean, um, Country House was making the biggest, boldest move on the outside, and as everybody's witnessed, he wasn't bothered uh, that bad at at all. And actually, uh, uh, maximum security was drawing off at the end. Uh, but according to the Kentucky State uh, Racing Commission and all of American racing, if a horse is intimidated, uh, bothered um, by any point, uh, costing the horse a racing position, which obviously happens, uh, then they must be disqualified. And the reason uh, that it took so long is they were trying to figure out how far back they were going to take him. Well, they took him back behind the 18th finisher, long-range Toddy, who, in my opinion, was going to probably uh, finish in the top five or six. And, and there were gambling uh, entities of uh, super high fives and stuff that he would have been a part of. So he was disqualified. And those are considered uh, class two rules of uh, disqualification, which only happens here in North America internationally the class one rules that if the feeling of uh, the stewardship uh, feels that the best horse won the race and did not impact uh, uh, anyone that was uh, interfered with was going to outrun them then the number would have stood so um, the winner maximum security would have stood in any other country uh, which would have at the end of the day, I mean, the owners, the trainer, the jockey, most of all, the betters would not have uh, paid the price for the disqualification. So uh, I agreed with their decision. I think that at the end of the day, maximum security is going to be the most famous racehorse in the United States racing history. And that the, the rules of uh, this education will be changed. Wow, that's, that's quite a, a statement. I guess the question I have is, 
when it when it came up, and I was at Santa Anita. I know you won Santa Anita nine times, and it's an absolutely amazing racetrack to be at. It was my first time there. I was there watching the Derby while I was at Santa Anita, so it was exciting to be there. But right before the Kentucky Derby, there was a there was a, a horse veered into another horse, and they switched it from first and second, so they switched positions. And um, but I guess the question is is why, and then in that case, there was an inquiry, meaning that the Storts decided that there was a problem. But in this case, there was two objections. The Country House's jockey and Long Range Toddy's jockey both objected. Why, why did not the Storts put the inquiry up sign, and why did they wait for the objection? Yeah, look, I, I don't know. I have no idea why. I was working for NBC, NBC Sports uh, Radio on the weekend. I was up next to the Stewart stand. And the announcer stand. I've never uh, watched the race from that point of view before. But uh, at the 516th bowl, when the incident happened, I hit my uh, uh, callback number, talkback button uh, to our producer. And I said, "Uh, Kentucky, we have a problem. I said, there's going to be an inquiry here. And, you know, we had allowed time for that because of the production meeting the day before. They had a lot of different elements that were going to happen in the post-race stuff. And I said, what happens if we have an inquiry? Well, we did. And I maybe put the whammy um, on the situation, but it was something that needed to be addressed. And it was 22 minutes. And the reason that, in my mind, it took so long, they didn't know how far back uh, they were going to take the winner down. I, I thought it was cut and dried. I talked about it on radio, that it was cut and dried to me, that the number needed to come down according to the rules. In my heart, the best horse won, and I didn't feel, per international rules, that it should come down. Uh, But we weren't playing for international rules. We were playing for American rules, and, and those were the rules, and you can't argue with them at the end of the day. But then talk about exactly with maximum security veered into War of the Wills. What, what do you think happened? I mean, it went from the first position to the fifth position. And, I mean, you watch these, these photos, and I think the miracle of this race was, I mean, this is truly a miracle that we didn't have a 12-horse pileup, or it could have been a disaster out there. I, it's just, it's absolutely a miracle that there was not uh, further, you know, there wasn't an accident because of, uh, because of I, when you look at the horses, it almost looks like they're, they're, their feet are like next to each other as they're, as they're running, as they're running. Yeah, I can't believe somebody didn't fall, and it was no fault of uh, Louis Tsai as the jockey of uh, maximum security, and I think it just shows the prowess of the jockeys that were involved in the race with Tyler Gaffleon, who was on War of Will, who uh, initially started around uh, maximum security because he didn't have room on the inside, and he had a, he had a position that he could obtain uh, that he was making his move, and uh, there were water spots. My my Twitter account has been very active about talking about this, and uh, it had uh, rained like a deluge, uh, you know, I mean, epic deluge of rain, uh, maybe not as bad as last year or at the Preakness in, in uh, 2015, but uh, it was raining, and the race is so late, and it was so dark that they turned the lights on, and it was causing uh, water puddles uh, on the racetrack with the amount of rain that we had here on Saturday, and the lights were shining down, causing a glare. And if you can imagine driving on the icy road or uh, in the morning when the sun is hitting you right in the face and you can't see anything, and horses' vision it is not perfect, trust me. I mean, they see things that, uh, the smallest thing, uh, sometimes a cigarette butt on the racetrack, a piece of paper that's flown onto the track, and they shy from it. These were our young, uh, pretty much uh, inexperienced racehorses, three-year-olds. Uh, so let's say uh, first graders that have uh, the NFL uh, ability of an athlete. They're running 40 miles an hour, so... All this happened in, in probably four one-hundredths of a second. And the reaction from Luis Saez and Tyler Gaffleon, uh, what they did to stop uh, probably America's worst uh, racing accident, they, they protected from, and I think they, they should be commended for that. I mean, the other thing that this 
race, the discussion, and, and we've, we're talking to Gary Stevens, Hall of Fame jockey, nine-time Triple Crown stakes winner. Um, his Twitter account is gstevens uh, underscore jockey. It's great. He's been updating it constantly. <laughs> it's, I've been following it. It's, it's amazing. Go on gstevens underscore jockey. Um, two questions. One is they say that the field at 20 is too much, and that contributed to a problem. And then the second is, if it's raining that hard, the weather's that bad, why don't you delay the race or move the race back a little bit with that of salt? Is that something that you see happening, any of those changes, the field size of the derby or maybe postponing or not postponing, but delaying a race when it is actually raining? Yeah, I, I, I mean, my advice would be the the other two Triple Crown races, uh, the Preakness and the Belmont, they are limited to 14 horses. Uh, Pimlico is limited to 14 because they can't hold a t- uh, capacity, a, a starting gate wide enough for 20 horses. Belmont is actually wider than Churchill Downs. They can accommodate, but the run into the first turn is too close, and it's too many horses for American racing. Uh, to run that many. In Europe, they run more than that. They have run up to 35 horses in a race on a straightaway, but they split in the groups. That doesn't happen on ovals of the uh, United States uh, racing. Uh, they're all left-handed, um, so that's not possible. Yeah, I think they need uh, to look at uh, limiting the horse, uh, the, the race to 14 horses. It used to be no one unless they actually had a chance of winning, would come to the Derby. Now, anybody with a chance in hell of winning the Kentucky Derby will come and run. And and God bless them, because a 160-some dollar payoff won yesterday and 10 years ago, Mind That Bird won the Kentucky Derby. So you can't, you can't chase somebody out of it, but uh, with the conditions of, of yesterday, jockeys' uh, vision is impaired. We're wearing eight pairs of goggles, and you pull them down one at a time as your vision is impaired. The horses, obviously, with the kickback, they're not seeing well. And then you have the glare of the racetrack. So I don't have a problem with uh, with the condition of the racetrack. It's the safest racetrack uh, surface in America as far as footing goes. But perhaps they should shorten the field to 14. And, and move it, move the post time up earlier. That way, if there is a delay, and, and make it early enough that the lights don't have to be turned on. Older horses that have experience racing on sloppy racetracks, they can handle it. And the trainers that know they can't, they, they withdraw their horses. But none of those horses had faced the conditions they faced yesterday. Or Saturday. We're talking to... <laughs> Um, Gary, just one more one more question. I, a lot of people said, I don't know if you had broken down it so much, but game winner, I, I have a, a lot of my buddies who were in Churchill's, and they thought that game winner ran almost two miles trying to, you know, that was one of their favorites because they started out from the outside, ran in, ran outside again, it was like 10 wide. Did you get a chance to watch game winner? And people sort of like that. I'm starting to see a lot of people talking about game winner for the Preakness, saying it had such a great run. They felt it had the best in terms of speed there in the Derby, but uh, really just had just a weird ride because it's getting boxed in at different levels. Yeah, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a little biased. I'm uh, at the home of uh, Ron Anderson, my longtime agent, and uh, the agent of Joel Rosario. I'm at, still in Louisville right now. I'll be here for the next week uh, doing some Fox television over uh, next weekend from Churchill Downs. Um, but, uh, man, he didn't break well, and he saved ground going into the first turn, but he was a long ways off the pace, and, and I watched him. For, and it's the first time I've watched the uh, Derby from the sixth floor, and it's quite a view up there. I was next to Larry Comas, the race caller for NBC, and, and uh, man, that kickback was hitting him in the face, and he was just jumping up and down. He was wasting more energy than ground he was covering. Joel got him out going into the, the far turn. He made a, a, a good, bold move for about a sixteenth of a mile, and he was losing a lot of ground. But he, uh, to me, it was it was visually apparent that he was not enjoying the conditions. 
<laughs> well, I have to like to like to run it, but Gary, I know you are busy. I know you have lots of, and I, I so appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Uh, thank you so much, and uh, and we'd love to have you on back again, uh, maybe to talk uh, sort of like Preakness and Belmont. And uh, uh, thanks for, I mean, my, and we're down here in West Palm Beach. Uh, Gulfstream is right down the right down the road, so it's definitely a lot of my listeners just love talking about horse racing, and, and certainly your insight is greatly appreciated. So I appreciate you coming on my show today. Listen, guys, I, I appreciate it, and I, I think that, uh, you know, um, maximum security may be remembered as the uh, change of American racing. I think there's going to be some rule changes as far as disqualifications, and uh, in my mind, he is the Kentucky Derby winner and uh, a, a game changer for our sport. He is Gary Stevens. Well, thank you for your <clears throat> Good. I... No, go ahead, Gary, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, Gary Stevens, thank you so much for joining us here on Ira on Sports. Hall of Fame, uh, Hall of Fame jockey, and you should go ahead and follow him on Twitter. It's a great follow. It's at GStevens underscore jockey. Follow him on Twitter. Um, great stuff from, from Gary Stevens there, Ira. And, it, it, you know, it's interesting to hear him say that he does think maximum security is the best. And going into this race, the horse was undefeated. Um, the, the only one in the field. So what's some before we get to Brittany Yurton on the line, uh, TVG Network host and uh, NBC Horse Racing host and announcer, um, what do you think was uh, some, some more of your takeaways from the Derby? Sorry, I didn't get your – what's the question again, Mike? I'm sorry. Well, I just want to talk about the race a little bit. I mean, uh, you know, a little bit more on your thoughts on the Derby. Would you have done this? Uh, I mean, it, it's like, – like Gary said, this is going to be – he might be the most famous horse ever because of what happened and, and the precedent that's being set here. I saw it. I don't know the ruling as well, as good as some people, but it did look like interference to me. And like you said, I think a lot of people are in the camp that this was interference. So how would you have, uh, have, have let this play out? I thought it was. I, 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 I've watched this 30 times. I'm stronger than other people. I just felt that – I, look, I – I bet on long range toddy. So I was following long range toddy that whole time. Oh, me too. And I just felt like if you're running any race, I mean, watch, I go to all car racing, I watch running, everything. I mean, I think maximum security just cleared out. They came to the head of the stretch. I know you bump at the beginning of the race, but then you have a mile and a quarter to, 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 to steady yourself the rest of the way. But the fact is that it, that it's the top of the stretch, and Maxis Security just literally made three or four horses stop running and then ran back to the position, and it's not fair. I just – I'm not giving it – and I, I think Long Ridge Chaudhary – if you looked at Long Ridge Chaudhary at the Rebel, Long, it still had speed. I wanted to give – I mean, it should have been a fair ending, and I don't – I'm not giving maximum security this pass that it would have won. I'm the only maybe person left on the earth that would say that, but I just <laughs> want to see a fair race at the end. And I think long range, I think maximum security veered too much, not forced a war of the will. And, and if there was an accident, they clearly would have been disqualified because also we'd have been injured. But the fact is, I think they're trying to set a tone where they, that I know it's, a, it's probably it's not the jockey's fault, but that you're not going to, you're not going to give a horse a victory because they were veering all over the place. And, and hurt and causing potential damage to the horses and the riders. And it was setting a, a standard. I don't think it was a close call. I watch a lot of racing, and uh, I've seen it happen all the time. If, it's, if this is going to be called on a, the third race at Belmont in, a, in June, it's gonna be, it should be called now. I don't think there should be a reason why not to it. And I think it was pretty egregious. When I first saw it, I didn't see it that much. But I've, as I said, I've seen 25 replays, and uh, I know my uh, – I have my, my girlfriend went nuts on this. She thinks that, you know, but I think everyone has strong opinions. Like she believes that the max security won and there should have been whatever. And, and I think it's great that there, you have this argument, you have the discussion, but from my personal opinion, I think that maximum security clearly uh, interfered with a bunch of horses and deserve to be disqualified under the rules of racing. Let's go to Brittany Yurton. She's on the line with us now. You know her from TVG and NBC. She's, she's great. And uh, Brittany, thank you so much for joining us first and foremost, but I, I want you to know, you may not know this, but we we have a uh, a Greyhound racing track here in South Florida. It's called the Palm Beach Kennel Club. Uh -huh. And one of their, um, the finalists in their last stakes was named after you. Brittany Yurton is, is a famous <laughs> Greyhound here in South Florida. How funny is that? Uh, well, firstly, thank you for having me on. Secondly, that's awesome. I That was brought to my attention, I think, a couple of weeks ago. Was this Greyhound doing really well, undefeated for a while? Yeah. I thought I saw some positive past performances. <laughs> no, I mean it's so cool, and yeah, she just made it to the uh, the finals of one of the big stakes here. Didn't get the win, but uh, looking good as as a young pup here in South Florida. So we'll uh, we'll we'll keep tagging you in that on Twitter. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Ira, what do you have for Brittany? 
Well, Brittany, first of all, you did the broadcast from NBC and you did the broadcast for TVG. Um, and I just got the, saw the overnight ratings for the Derby, and it's the highest rated Derby in 30 years. And I, 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 would you credit that to Justify and American Pharaoh? Or what's the reason why? I mean, people did not know there was going to be that much controversy when they were watching it. Good, but <laughs> no, is that no. It was the highest rated. You know, some would say, oh, is it because of the controversy? But, of course, declining. that only came the final 20 minutes after the race was over. Uh, two minutes, I think, exactly was. Um, I think what's happened this year in horse racing has put it in the spotlight in a very negative way. Obviously um, there are some tragic times at Santa Anita and I don't know if people wanted to tune in to the Kentucky Derby to see coverage because it has been brought to the forefront in the past month or if because of the coverage for NHL hockey that was coming up a little bit later. And obviously NBC has been doing a fantastic job of promoting the Kentucky Derby uh, within all of those broadcasts. I'm not quite sure why everyone decided to tune in this year more than any other year since the 1990s. Uh, but I have to say I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I know how incredibly hardworking everybody within the broadcast is. And this is something that is much more than just the eight hours that you see on that day. It is many, many weeks, months in preparation for these three days to make sure that they can put forth the best product for not only horse racing fans, but fans that just tune in that one day of the year to watch horse racing. So um, I'm very proud to be a part of it, and I applaud the entire team for all of the work that they put in. So, Brittany, give me uh, – you're there at the winner's circle. What was coming – what were you hearing in your, in your earpiece – what were you told? You're ready to interview Maximum Security and the jockeys and the trainers and the owners. What was going on in terms of that, in terms of what you were hearing, being right there at uh, Churchill Downs when it, at ground zero, really, for what was going on? Well, immediately after Maximum Security crosses the wire first, we start prepping for that interview. I'm standing with Rebecca Lowe, who's handling the interview with the owner. So we're going through kind of prepping what kind of questions that we want to ask, but at the same time, listening intently to the interviews that are being had by the other reporters. So listening to Louis Saez speaking with Donna Brothers, and he even in that interview spoke about what a baby this horse was and how he shied away from something that was in the infield and got a little scared and he had to correct him. And then you hear from Jason Service, who's with Nick Luck, and a little bit lost for words because obviously what an incredibly huge moment this is uh, for him. So trying intently to listen to this also prep the kind of interview questions that we want to have when they come up here. And then we hear that there's an, a, a jockey objection. So we start watching the replays over and over again. And it was Rebecca's first Kentucky Derby, so she leans to me and says, do you think that they would actually take this horse down? And based off of the initial replay that I saw, you begin to think, wow, this actually is fairly serious. And the more you watched it, the more it looks like they could actually take this horse down. But it is the Kentucky Derby, and it would be completely unprecedented for that to happen. So we're watching this unfold as the public is as well, because this has never happened in Kentucky Derby history on the day of a race for a horse to be disqualified. So we're kind of trying to manage these waters and get through it just as much as the public was because we were seeing what the public was seeing. And the more you watched it, the more it seemed like, yes, there were many other horses that were affected by maximum security and whatever he saw or heard. Louis Sides did everything he could to correct it. And it's an incredibly unfortunate thing to happen on the biggest race day in America um, and an incredibly difficult decision for the stewards. I, I don't envy the position they're in, but it was a lot of, okay, uh, if this happens, now we have to start prepping for country house. And it's a completely different interview then, obviously, for many reasons. So we were kind of moving through what? it as much as the public was. Was there any chance, I mean, you were, you were there in the winner's circle, but I guess the question that people are asking today is none of the stewards were interviewed. And it's like one of those things where I know you don't get to interview the referees at a football game afterwards, the umpires, but sometimes the league makes statements. But, so it's not like, oh, they're going to come out and do a press conference. But I think that's what people were mm -hmm. looking for is maybe the stewards to give more than just a statement. They were looking for some sort of discussion. And, and, and was there any thought from the press to say, wait, stewards, come on, explain the decision. Let us know what happened. And, and what happened with that in terms of getting the stores to, to make some, some further statements? 
Right. Well, they did have a press conference after we went off air. So obviously um, that was aired and they read a statement, but they didn't take any questions, which I I found to be a little bit surprising. Um, What I was most asked about by fans that only watch it once a year or horse racing fans was why they didn't put up the inquiry sign because that's typically something that you see to show to the public that they're taking a look at everything that was involved in this incident um, along with the jockey's objection. So obviously there were two, Flavian Pratt and John Court. And so I think it's still mystifying to many, including myself, as to why the inquiry sign wasn't posted um, and to why they didn't take any questions. So on that, I can't answer because I haven't spoken to the stewards uh, since then, but they did have a press conference and make a statement as to why their decision was made, but nothing has since been said. Now, some people in the media are really putting pressure on Court, who was of Long Range Toddy and Pratt of Country House, are saying they really, for the good of the sport, shouldn't have raised an objection. I feel bad for them. Really, it should have been an inquiry. It should not have been on there. But they, because Louis, uh, because um, Tyler Gaffleona wore a will, didn't raise an issue. Why did they raise it? Um, and was there, did you, when you talked to them, I and mean, what was their state feeling in terms of why they felt like they had to bring this to the attention? And were they going to get, I heard, I saw, an, I heard an interview with Court today where he felt like people were mm-hmm. supporting him coming forward and, and, and actually raising the objection. But I don't know if you got any more sense in terms of, were people sort of upset that they actually raised the objection and they shouldn't if there wasn't going to be an inquiry? I think that Flavian Pratt's getting a lot of heat right now, and I don't think it deserved heat. Um, he, finished second. He rode a great race on Country House to finish second. And he was given the victory because of what Maximum Security did impeding War of Will, Long Range Toddy, and Bodie Express as well. So uh, two, maybe three horses that were severely affected by the horse moving out to three paths, however many you want, two or three paths off, off of the rail and then having to recorrect. And obviously that could have led to something even bigger. I am so grateful. Let me say this, that nothing catastrophic happened that day because the videos and photos that you can see of War of Will's front leg in between the two hind legs of maximum security, it's just, it's, it's a very scary thing to see. And so I'll echo trainer Mark Cass's sentiments when he said the next day, I'm smiling ear to ear because War of Will is in his stall alive and well, um, because it could have been a very, very horrific and scary situation, one of the worst disasters we would ever see in, in horse racing. And so for that, I am incredibly grateful. Um, but I think Flavian Pratt's getting a lot of heat for calling the objection. Um, from what I have heard, he many jockeys on the gallop out were yelling at him to call an objection because of how they were affected in the race. Um, so I think Flavian Pratt called the objection to bring to the stewards' attention, can you look at this spot? Because he said, I was bumped a little bit, but other than that, I had a clean trip. So I believe that Flavian Pratt called the objection to point out to, because there was no inquiry sign posted, point out to the stewards, you need to take a look at what happened coming into the stretch. And John Court obviously did it on his own accord because he was, he was um, directly affected. Yeah, I mean, it was like Bodie Express and Long Range Toddy were all, I mean, they almost like... I, it looked, I watched it. I mean, they really slowed down in terms of, of how they, they were coming through it. I guess we just asked, had Gary Stevens on, and we asked him the same, I'll mm-hmm. ask you the same question. What about derby size in terms of having 20 horses that as opposed to the 14 at any other race that they have? Um, do you see that happening? Do you see uh, Churchill Downs and Kentucky Derby going from 20 to 14, or do you think it'll still stay at that number? I think that, I mean, Gary would probably have a better answer to this than I because he's been in that situation riding in a 20 horse field but when I look at the incident that took place on Saturday that could have happened in a five horse field a six horse field I do not believe that the amount of horses in that race affected had any sort of effect on maximum security um, I, so I don't think that that's a, a fair comparison necessarily necessarily or a fair argument if that's what people are saying the 20 horse field because it could have happened in a much much smaller field because he was towards the front of the pack it affected the four horses or so that that were around him because he he veered out 
Um, what I would like to see is a 20-horse starting gate. I think that a big issue is the break. Everybody talks about being in the one hole and you're breaking straight into the turn, or um, between 14 and 15, you have that gap there, and horses tend to run towards the gap. So for me, I'd love to see a 20-horse starting gate. I know that's been a conversation for a very long time, um, but it does seem it does seem worth it. But I do not believe that the amount of horses within the field yesterday affected um, – or is the reason for the incident on Saturday? We're talking to Brittany Urton, who's a TVG host and also NBC Sports uh, host. And, and you're going to get ready now for the Preakness. And as I just told you, the ratings for the Kentucky River were the highest in 30 years. We think with all this controversy and everything, the Preakness ratings are going to be the highest in how many years? I mean, it's going to be amazing in terms of what's going to happen. And I guess give me, a, give me the storylines going to the Preakness, what you're going to be talking about for the next two weeks and getting everybody excited about, uh, about going to Pimlico. Oh, geez, we've got a lot, don't we? <laughs> I think uh, the public's probably going to want to hear from from the connections, and we'll see what happens moving forward. I've heard that um, Gary West is about to come on to Fox News, I believe, to make a statement. Um, I, you know, that moving forward, they've already said maximum security will not go to the Preakness, so we will not have him. Uh, Bill Mott isn't one typically to wheel a horse back in two weeks, but you do have the pressure of having the Kentucky Derby winner, so it'll be interesting to see what transpires there. But I do feel there's an incredibly talented group that did not run in the Derby that is waiting for them in the Preakness. I'm a big fan of another twist of fate. So I, I think aside from what happened in the Derby, you've got some great storylines and some talent waiting out there in Baltimore. So I think that's something that's, that's worth getting excited for. Um, no rain, please. Is that all? That's all I can ask for. <laughs> no more rain. <laughs> I, was, I was at the Preakness when Real Quiet ran, and, and, and they were, the water all stopped. There's no food except for the drinks. That was the only thing. And it was like, no, the bathrooms were backed up. It was probably the worst. And it was 100 and like 110 degrees. So I know that it's, oh, it's the weather at, uh, in Baltimore could be anything. <laughs> Very true. But I, I'm really excited about it. I, I think and I hope that everyone that tunes in for the Kentucky Derby um, looks forward to the Preakness because there's a lot of storylines there. And as I said, plenty of talent. So they definitely have reason to watch. Thanks, Brittany, for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Have a good one. She is Brittany Yurton from TVG and NBC and uh, the Palm Beach Kennel Club, apparently. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Great interview. Great stuff today, Ira. I, like you said, this is pretty much what everyone's uh, in the sporting world's lives encompassing for, for this, this hot entire weekend and today discussing the Kentucky Derby. But I think we got to move on because I don't know if you heard about this, but the NBA playoffs are in full swing. Um before we get into it, Ira, did you know that the Knicks are 16-1 to favorites in Vegas to win the championship next year? They must assume Kevin Durant is packing his bags, grabbing Kawhi and, and Kyrie, and heading to New York. Well, I don't like to talk about, like, next year. I, I, like, I like watching these games. I mean, it's sort of like I hate the people that are at dinner and they're talking about their next meal. So I don't want to talk about the next meal I want to enjoy. But the only thing I'm going to say is that if you put Kawhi Leonard and Kevin Durant on the same team, they're the favorite to win the title. And I don't think it's close. Those two players are playing at such a high level. And the only problem with each of them is they might be, like, I'm going to say this, too unselfish. How someone who's scoring in their 40 points a game, both of them, could be called unselfish. But they really should be taking every single shot. But the fact is, I would love to see Kevin Durant and Kawhi Leonard play on the exact same team. Those two guys are unbeatable. They, will, they would not lose. To, there's nobody on this world. There's no team. No, I don't care how you construct it, would beat those two players. And that's what's so exciting. So if, you can, if it's going to be the Clippers or going to be the Knicks or someone, but that's, I mean, if it, those, because right now, Kevin Durant is carrying the Warriors on his back. And Kawhi Leonard is carrying the Toronto Raptors on his back. And besides Giannis, who's playing, playing well, I mean, they are the stars. They are by far the best players in the game. And if they are going to go to the Knicks, then I don't think they're 16-1. to Then I think that's the greatest thought because I think they should be 1-5 to five if they go to the Knicks. And whoever well, gets those two players is going to win the title for next year. And if they stay four years, could probably win the next four titles. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. They That sports book said even if they did get both, they'd still have uh, Milwaukee as the favorite, which I think is just crazy. But let's talk, you Impossible. know. Yeah, Impossible. no, I, I agree with you. I think that's just crazy. Even if, you know, we saw it with the Heat. It's tough to come together with, you know, all new players when they, I'm talking about the big three. But that did come together. It just took them a season. So, I, I mean, I, I think they'd be fine in New York. Regardless, you talked about it. Kawhi Leonard is absolutely carrying this Toronto Raptors team. His teammates have even come out and said, we need to do more. Um, so what's your take on this series? We're tied two to two now. Well, what happened is, is that, I mean, Philadelphia comes in on, on game two on Monday night and, uh, it was one, one in Toronto. And then they come out and, uh, Philadelphia, uh, they, 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 uh, you know, they were able to turn that was in, the game was in, was in Toronto and it was one, one and they come back and they just a great game. I mean, Jimmy Butler, 30 points, 11 rebounds, five assists was tremendous. Uh, and uh, Embiid was awful. Two for seven for 12 points. Uh, Simmons had six, six, had six points. I mean, it was, it was just Harris did nothing. It was really the Jimmy Butler show willing them to willing them to victory. And the Raptors, I mean, Leonard was great. 35 points on 13 for 24 shooting, seven rebounds, six and assists. But really, they got nothing from anyone. Gasol was one for six. Abaka one for six. Danny Green, one for eight. I mean, it was a complete disaster for Toronto, and they were they were just not ready for that game at all. And uh, and then I went to Game Three in Philly, and that was I mean they were saying they were calling this the biggest game since 2001, Allen Iverson, when Iverson played Kobe and Shaq in the NBA Finals, and the uh, Lakers won in five games. I mean, place was just nuts at Wells Fargo Stadium. Uh, it was just exciting. There was you know, all the Philly stars. Meek Mill was there, Iverson, Alshon Jeffries, Deshaun Jackson. Uh, and it was just, it, it was great. I mean, they had Carson Wentz and Reese Hopkins come out. They put a Liberty Bell out before the game, and they run out there, and then who's going to ring the Liberty, Liberty Bell? It's like the first pitch, but it's really big. And the Sixers just jumped up to a 74-53 lead uh, at halftime, 89-81 at the, at, the, at, at the end of the third. Um, Siakam for Toronto tripped Embiid, and it looked pretty flagrant. And they could have – I mean, Siakam's lucky they didn't get suspended for a game. It was like a Grayson Allen uh, trip. But the key thing was that the only thing keeping the, the Raptors in the game was Leonard. And the beginning of the fourth quarter, they kicked Leonard out. And after that, they were up eight. Then the lead was 15. Leonard finally – I said when he's coming out of the game, I'd go – he better play because this game's going to be over. And yeah. he was out of the game with five minutes to go because the lead went up to 15 or 20. By the time he got back, it was like 20 points and he couldn't get back in the game in time. And it was a total blowout. And then you're like, okay, the Sixers have the series. It's two one. They're going to play game four at home. Everything's great. Everything's great. They're set. They're ready to go. And they come out Sunday and boy, I mean, Embiid, people are saying Embiid's like better than Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Shaquille O'Neal, but of course he was horrendous. He said his, he was not feeling well. Again, two for seven, 11 points. Uh, Jimmy Butler had to carry the team again. You're seeing Ben Simmons, the star point guard that would be so great. Really, it's just pedestrian. Every game is like 10 points, six assists, six rebounds. He can't shoot. They're letting him alone. He's not really doing anything on the court, and Leonard is just shutting him down. Uh, but it's just it's just amazing in terms of what the Raptors did. Uh, Kawhi Leonard has is averaging 38 points, nine rebounds, and four assists for the series. He's shooting 62 percent and 50 percent from three. I mean, you can't play better than Kawhi Leonard is playing for a team that. And then and and Lowry was just horrendous the last game, but he just started to play better. They're getting points from this last game. They had him from uh, Lowry at 14 points, Ibaka 12, and Gasol finally at 16 points. So I mean, I was thinking Toronto was my pick. I was like, before yesterday's game, I'm like, oh, no, I think Sixers are going to win. But, boy, Toronto really showed it. And, 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 and B is – it's all about MB. Is he going to come to play or is he just going to joke around? Because he made, like, the game on, the, on Thursday night, he made, like, nine shots, celebrated after seven of them. And you just can't be celebrating. I know it's fun. He loves playing. Fans love it. But it's too much show. It's too much show and not enough time. It's, it's, he's got to really step it up to play. They're counting on him, and it's not a joke. And Clyde Leonard shows no emotion. He's totally soulless on the field, on the court. But he is just tremendous, offensively, defensively. He is like people are comparing him to Jordan. He's not Michael Jordan. He does not have flexibility Jordan has. But he plays like Jordan because he's, he controls the game on the offensive side and controls the game on the defensive side. So it's 2-2. Uh, I still think Toronto's winning the series, and I think they're going to go to the NBA Finals. But uh, uh, Lowry's going to have to play better. Gasol, Abaka, those guys are going to have to you know, help Kawhi out a little bit. It's 7.50. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, it's 
I don't want to say the most boring series of the four remaining, but looking at Boston and the Bucks, it kind of is. There's the, the fewest storylines. We're not having nine OTs like like we are, uh, you know, on the, on the Western Conference. Um, but this one's going to be two one right now. Boston is on top of Milwaukee, thirty nine to thirty five, with just about four minutes to go in the second half. Well, we yeah, I'm more done with the show. I'm jumping right to watch the game. But we went we went last week. We were at we were. Uh, but we were talking about this, and so Milwaukee was up, uh, was down 0-1, and then they go, they play, they played a game in, in Milwaukee. Milwaukee easily won, 123 to 102. I mean, it looked like they're like, oh, the Celtics have figured out Giannis. He's not ready. He can't do it. I said those things. No one else. I, I said it. The Celtics have figured out. Boy, Giannis figured out how to play. I mean, he was had 29 points, and suddenly Middleton shooting well with 28 points, and they were getting other scoring, and the Celtics just were awful. Kyrie Irving was four for 18 for nine points. Jason Tatum for five points. And then on Friday, you're thinking, okay, now we're back in Boston, and uh, they're going to make the adjustments, and they're going to take control and be up 2-1. But again, uh, the Bucks were able to play well. And uh, Giannis is just doing what he wants. He was 16. He was 32 points. They're calling the fouls. He's 16 to 22 from the foul line. Uh, it was really not a close game. George Hill came up out of nowhere from Milwaukee, who was on their bench, and he played great. Um, interesting in the series is uh, Brogdon's going to be coming back from Milwaukee. Uh, Marcus Smart's coming back for Boston, and uh, what happens? But right now, look, if, if Milwaukee wins the series, they're going to be up three-one. Go back to Milwaukee, and it, it'll be over. So it's uh, you're right. It's a uh, Giannis figured it out. I got to give him credit. He played bad the first game, and he came back and played two really good games. This is I said this is where the superstars show themselves: your ability to adjust and play well. And Giannis has played great these last two games. You're absolutely correct on that. And uh, it's going to take a big game uh, tonight out of um, out of Harden to tie this series up with Golden State and Houston. Uh, it's 2-1 to one in favor of Golden State. Got to tell you, I'm rooting for the beard. I'm rooting for the Rockets. But I don't know if it's going to happen. I, but what's going on in that series? Well, what's going on is Steph Curry is a disaster. He is playing so poorly. He it is it is malpractice on his part how bad he is. Like I watched last night the Portland game and Seth Curry. If they switched Seth and Seth, uh, this series would have been this would be a clincher tonight because I, I just I cannot believe. I mean, we have talked about this a while for Steph Curry, and he has gotten so much fast. He wins the first title that he won over over the Cavaliers. And uh, the one thing about it is that, that he, he wasn't the MVP. It was Andre Godala with the MVP. Now, he's supposedly MVP of the league, but can't win the MVP of that. The second year, they, I know they lost Draymond Green for a game, and I know Andre Godala was hurt, but he had to come on. He had a better team. They had to win that series, but he played terrible again, and that's why they came back from 3-1. And then Durant comes and joins them and wins the last two titles and carries Steph Curry. And Steph Curry puts great numbers in the regular season, and he scores all the points, and he makes the shots. But, boy, he was a disaster. He missed – I mean, he, the, these last two games have been just – he was 3 for 13 from the, from the three-point in, in game two. The Warriors ended up winning that. But uh, I just think – and then, then certainly uh, on Sunday night or Saturday night, uh, just a horrendous – one of the worst – performances from a big-time player I have ever seen uh, when, the, when the Warriors lost in overtime in a game they should have easily won. That's for, for Curry shooting as poor as he did. Um, it, was just, it was just amazing. How, how, I, I, it wasn't just the missing of the threes. It was the layups after layup that he missed every chance they had. And Durant was just making shot after shot after shot and just playing great. And it's just amazing. Durant is the ball. They can't double-team him. They can't, he can shoots over everybody they put in there. He's making every big shot. I mean, he scores It was 46 points, shooting 6 for 10 from 3, and Steph Curry was 7 for 23, 2 for 9 for 3, 17 points. I'll give you an example about Curry. He's shooting 35% uh, for the shooting for the series, 35%. For the regular season, it's 47%. From three-point line, he's 25%. For the regular season, it's 44%. He's turning the ball over. He's not making assists. He's just, he's just, he's just uh, a complete – I mean, it says 17 points, 20 points, and 18 points in the three games. Uh, just t- playing terrible. And, uh, you know, it's weird in, in, in game two. Uh, Harden leaves. That that's the game, and Harden hasn't played well. The thing is that Curry's playing poorly is letting Harden off the hook. Harden complains. He got hit in the eye by Draymond Green. I thought that was. I mean, he he's like playing the entire game where he can't see. I mean, it was a fight. They would have stopped it. It was the Alvarez Jacobs fight. They would have said you can't continue. You can't see. And he's he's just the whole game for two hours is like I can't see. I can't see. But he still scores thirty some points. And uh, and and you know at the end they were it was it was very close there at the end in the first game. And I mean, in terms of game two, but uh, I think, I just think this is, this series is going to come down to tonight. 
the Warriors have got to win because I think if they lose this, it's just going to give so much more momentum to Houston. The Warriors have proven that winning at Oracle, they they lost to the Clippers twice at Oracle, so they can lose at home. They need to they they needed to end the series two days ago, or, and now they they definitely need to win the series today to make it to to to, to, to close it out. You're absolutely right, and let's uh, let's wrap up basketball with what I thought would be the series that nobody cared about, and it seems to be the most exciting one so far. It's Portland and Denver. This series is amazing, and, and I watched that game three, six overtimes. I'm in the West Coast. I mean, the, the minutes, I'll just give you the, I'll give you the stats at first. Nick, Joker Cage played it in one game. This is, now they're playing the NBA. It's like someone plays 40 minutes, you think they, like, climbed Mount Everest. I mean, nobody wants to play the 48 minutes. And people forget, LeBron played 40, like, 7, 48 minutes last year. Michael Jordan would always play, like, 45 minutes. Like, this is, I mean, he would always play. He would always take a break in the first half, and he and Pippen would take breaks in the first half and just play the second half. Like, this whole idea that you can't play 48, 45 minutes is crazy with the NBA players. But Joker played 65 minutes, Murray 55 minutes, Millsap 49 minutes, Bartum 40 minutes, and for Portland, Lillard played 58 minutes, and McCollum played 60. What's exciting about the series is Jokic is this, in front of our eyes, is 23, 24 years old. He's seven feet tall. He can pass the ball. He can shoot. He's just, I think this is great for him. I mean, I think this is the type of series that it's 2-2, but if they lose and if they win, it's just going to make this team better. And Jamal Murray, from I had him, and I just, on my fantasy team this year, I just think he had a good year. I thought, as I said, I had inconsistent games. But I think, again, the pressure. These two guys are responding to the pressure. They're actually playing better. And this series has been great. Uh, in the, in the, in, you know, when you have four overtime games, you're going to have, like, the first shot. Portland had a chance to win in the, uh, in the, in the regular period, and Mino took a bad shot. I think the one thing I see from, the, from during the overtime is, like, it's the, the game was tied at the end. Instead of going for the stupid three with no time left, just get a two, get fouled. They were calling fouls. But, and then the uh, uh, Joker, missed a, Joker missed a shot to win in the first overtime. And then double overtime, Joker missed a shot, and Lillard missed a shot to win. And then triple overtime, Denver led with 30 seconds to go. And uh, Lillard made a layup, and then they had a chance, but then, uh, uh, then they tied it up. But then Murray, Denver missed a shot to win. But Rodney Hood, who hadn't really been playing the whole game for Portland, came in and hit a key shot in the uh, fourth overtime. Uh, leading them to the win and four overtimes that led them two one and I really thought that after Portland went up two one that Utah was just gonna I mean, Portland, I mean uh, Denver was gonna fold in the game four but they came back in Portland and won game four I mean it's showing in these playoffs that these teams are not holding their home court Portland has a great home field advantage it's loud the fans are crazy they're going nuts but uh, it was. It was the only thing keeping Portland. I mean, Lillard was, has been a little inconsistent. He has not been as well as played as well as he did against Oklahoma City. McCollum played just fantastic from Lehigh. He was great, uh, and it was uh, it's very interesting. And and a sneaky player who's playing great for Denver is uh, Paul Millsap. Paul Millsap played for Atlanta in a lot of playoff games. He's a veteran, and he has played at 21 points uh, uh, yesterday, and has been playing really good for them. So I mean, you got. Portland, Denver, two-two. You got two-one Golden State. You have two-one Milwaukee over over Boston, and two-two Toronto, Philly. I mean, this is great. When knew you knew these series were going to be great, and every night is just another fantastic, uh, tremendous game. It's Iron Sports, the True Oldies channel. Just a hair before eight o'clock. I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's um, let's do hockey real quick, Ira. A lot of good series going on. Right now, it's the end of the first period. Uh, Boston and Columbus are all tied up at 0-0, and they're going to need some goals in Columbus because Boston's up in this series 3-2, to and this has been, to me, the most uh, exciting series so far, most storylines. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's weird about these things. I was looking at it that there's so many of eight, you had eight teams going into the final, whatever, the final eight, and half of them had never won the Stanley Cup. And also what I think the storyline is interesting is when the season started, I was shocked at these things. San Jose, 22-1. to 1. St. Louis, 25-1. to 1. Dallas, 28-1. to 1. Columbus, 30-1. to 1. Uh, Colorado, 35-1. to 1. And Carolina, who's already passed and swept uh, the Islanders, they were 70-1. to 1. I mean, you want to talk about a week at upsets. You could have Country House at 65-1 to 1 with the Kentucky Derby. You have Carolina at 70-1. to 1. I mean, this is totally the time of, up, you know, this is upset, weekend upset time, a long shot time in terms of uh, what you're looking for. But, uh, no, I think, I, I, I think the Carolina sweep over the Islanders was a big surprise. Uh, I thought people felt like the Islanders could get at least a couple games out of there. But Carolina's playing great. And, uh, and, and just that final, the fourth game, I mean, just totally dominated the Islanders. 
and uh, it was just it was just uh, it was just like amazing. I mean, it wasn't even a close game, and you're waiting. You thought the Islanders might have some fight in them, uh, but in the Boston Columbus series. Uh, in Game Five, Columbus was down 2-0 late in the third period. They ended up tying it. That was it, the last five minutes of that game were tremendous because they they had ended up tying it. They're down 2-0. You think the game's over? They tied it. Then Boston gets a 3-2. Then Columbus ties it at 3-3, and then Boston wins at the end and, uh, and and wins 4-3. And so you had really a game of two goals and like five goals in the final five or six minutes of the game. So that was exciting too. But uh, then you have a game between uh, Dallas and St. Louis. So there's a, there's a lot, there's definitely a lot of excitement with the cup. And uh, unfortunately, there's not the glamour teams. There's no Washington. There's no Pittsburgh. Uh, which do, what do you think? What do you think, Mike? Uh, what's your favorite to, to come out of these for the, for the next round? Well, I like a few things you said there. And, and you're right. The only, dar- the only big team left is Boston. And they're always a team that's going to uh, going to draw a lot of fans. They've been a good hockey team for about a decade now. My biggest surprise is the fact that Carolina swept the Islanders. I was on this show saying I thought the Islanders we're looking pretty darn good after sweeping Pittsburgh, and everything just completely changes. And you know, Peter Mrazek is standing on his head in, in net for uh, for the Hurricanes. So this is, you know, it's been really exciting. I like these series going the distance. I do think Columbus ties it up tonight and then goes on to win. I just have a feeling about Columbus. I can't even believe they're down in this series. San Jose is going to close out uh, Colorado tonight. I-, I would believe they're up three to two in that series. San Jose is a really good team, and they're my favorites uh, to to come out of the West. Um, Altogether, so uh, I'll stick with them. Dallas and St. Louis. This one's tied up, and I really don't know how this is going to go. It's going to be based off Ben Bishop. I mean, he he left uh, he left the game early um, two nights ago, and now it's is Ben Bishop going to be healthy for the Stars? If he is, I'll give the credit to the Stars, and I have them moving on. But either way, going to be interesting. My favorite part of all this, Ira, if you look at the seeds from the NBA, it's one, two, three, four, and one, two, three, four who advanced. If you look at the NHL's seeds on who advance, it's two five six seven and two five seven eight. <laughs> so I mean, if there's ever a sport with parity, and like you said, you can make you, Carolina being seventy to one before the season starts. If you want to throw some future bets out in sports, that's this is the uh, sport to go with because it's Mike, crazy. What a, Mike, what about an exacta between? The Kentucky Derby, because we're seeing now these long shots, how well they do. And, and we had long shot toddy, but it was country house that won, that won. But the idea that these long shots in the, in the Kentucky Derby do well, and now you have in hockey, you could probably get, you could do an exact bet or uh, between. Parlay. Uh, not really exact, but yeah, parlay. Or a pair of the bets. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be considered a, between yeah, the yeah, parlay. And NHL. <laughs> I, I, I listen. If you can find me a sports book that'll take it, I'll, I'll, I'll be all over that. Um, Ira, real quick, let's do boxing. We got about a minute here. Uh, what's going on with, uh, with your favorite boxing? Well, I was. I tell you what, Canelo Alvarez and Daniel Jacobs was just a great. Was it, I was excited for the fight. It was on uh, DAZN, which is this new network that you have to go. And they have great viewing angles, which they have this drone in the ring. So there's like a drone that flies around. It's not really. It's on the street. It is a great way to watch the fight. Uh, Canelo, of course, uh, had a draw with Triple G that was controversial. Then he beat him. He's viewed as he's definitely the most marketable fighter. I don't know if he's viewed as the best fighter, but he's a middleweight, uh, 51, one and one, and uh, his only loss he had was to uh, Floyd Mayweather, but uh, this fight was interesting because Jacobs, Alvarez did what he did against uh, Triple G, is that Jacobs won the first round, then Alvarez won like the next five rounds, controlled it, but then at the last rounds, it wasn't like Jacobs was just winning the rounds, but he was sort of winning it, just like Alvarez did not, they were all close. Alvarez was never in trouble the entire fight, and Jacobs wasn't really in trouble either, Um, and it came down to 115-113, which is seven rounds at five that that Alvarez won on two judges' scorecards at eight to four on the other one. I sort of felt it was like an eight to four fight or nine to three. So I thought I was surprised that it was seven to five on two of the judges uh, scorecards. Uh, but, you know, they had, they had judged the fight against Triple G close. Those were seven fights, seven, five, seven, five fights, too. Uh, but uh, it was it was not it's like one of those fights people said, I think we felt like we we're bored going into it. But Canella is really strong. He throws a lot of punches. It was active. It wasn't dancing around. But it's almost like Jacobs felt like I like Danny Jacobs a lot. I think he's a good boxer. He's just lost. I mean, he's only lost. It's a very close decision to Triple G and now a very close decision to Canella. It's like. He needed to do more. He needed, you say, for the champion, if you want to get the championship belt, and Alvarez has all the belts, 
you gotta you gotta do more. And I just didn't think he 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 tried to win the fight. He almost thought that his corner was telling him, "You're winning." And I'm like, well, clearly you're not winning against Alvarez. They're not. And uh, but it was it was exciting to fight to watch, and it'll be interesting. And now coming up, we have an interesting fight. Anthony Joshua is finally fighting in New York for the heavyweight championship of the world, and it's a good time for people in America to see him uh, fight in uh, sort of prime time. But this Canelo fight was good, and and uh, it was uh, it was a good fight. This is a good a good time for boxing, and uh, and I and Alvarez is cementing himself as one of the greatest boxers of all time. You know, Ira, before we wrap this up, so I, I said about how I love hockey because you really just never know who's going to win, you, you know, season to season. It, anybody in the playoffs is a shot. I like ba- baseball is my favorite sport, though, and because crazy things happen and you just assume, when has this ever happened before? So we'll wrap this up with this. Pablo Sandoval, uh, San Francisco Giants third baseman today, hits a home run. Steals a base, his first since 2012. He's not, he's, <laughs> he's not the smallest guy, Pablo Sandoval. He also threw a scoreless inning. He came in in the eighth inning and closed him out. That's happened one time ever in 1905. Christy Mathewson was the other one to do that. So Pablo Sandoval joined some elite company. Ira, where are you headed this week? Well, I am hopefully going to get one of the NBA games. And I forgot to mention one other upset. Max Homa won the Wells Fargo Open. And in a field with Justin Rose, Paul Casey, Ricky Fowler, Sergio Garcia, Max Homa made $1.42 million dollars. Last two years ago, he made 18000 He's ranked 417th in the world. And it's amazing that he turned the same pro at the same time as Justin Thomas, that he only has made, he made last year two cuts, two tournaments out of 17, two cuts of the tournament. Crazy. And he's only been in the top 10 three out of, times out of 68 tournaments. But to be 417th in the world and win a tournament that a lot of the top players were, that's another upset, Max Homa. So we've got Max Homa, Country House, and Carolina all having a good weekend for the updates. But hopefully I'll be at one of the... Uh, I would like to go, perhaps, Golden State, uh, Houston, if there's a game five in uh, Golden State this week. Should be interesting. Got to thank so much uh, Hall of Fame jockey Gary Stevens, also TVG and NBC analyst Brittany Yurton for stopping by Iron Sports. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Iron Sports.